So tonight I'd like to talk about uh, searching in a wise direction. <clears throat> the opening day of a retreat, even for the most experienced among us, can be very difficult. Uh, we bring in a lot of noise. And <clears throat> we live with a lot of noise internally. And uh, that's uh, sort of the state of affairs. <clears throat> it drives us in particular ways. It hardens us. And uh, the journey of the spirit, the spiritual journey, is really in the opposite direction of that. It's a journey of quietude. And uh, as we proceed on the journey, we learn to meet whatever is arising within us that's very noisy with quietude. We don't put up a fuss and we don't put up an argument. We don't resist it. And that's a hard uh, strategy to understand because our life hasn't been about that at all. It's been about just the opposite. It's been about a kind of um, self-made person struggling to accomplish, to maintain. And uh, suddenly we find ourselves in a completely different and somewhat awkward direction towards quiet. <clears throat> I only say that there's nothing more fearful than quiet. You would think it would be just the opposite, wouldn't you? You'd think the noise would be the cause of our panic and uh, reactivity. And it is to a certain degree, but we're much more afraid of quiet, much more afraid. Because quiet doesn't... Uh, doesn't resist. It doesn't give me something to punch, to fight. It doesn't give me a counter-argument. It doesn't give me a boundary to dispute. It sort of just absorbs. And when we are in that position, we feel very alone. There's no more uh, there's not a lonelier feeling than being in quiet alone. I remember as a child having panic attacks at some point when everybody in the house was asleep and I would awaken and there was not a noise to be heard. And my mind would just, it felt like a sponge. It wasn't, it couldn't brace on anything. And the sense of noise allows us rebellion. It allows us a attraction. Something we can we can uh, rub up against. But quiet doesn't. And so, even though we may realize the journey leads to quiet, we're not necessarily willing to go on that journey. In fact, we often go on a journey in the opposite direction, of more noise. 
making more drama for ourselves, finding reasons to complain internally. And many of our lives have been formed out of drama because it's uh, obstacles we can overcome, surmount. And we can get a sense of meaning and purpose from that. Quiet doesn't, what does it give us? <laughs> you see? You see the, the problem? So we come to sit down here and we are to be quiet together. And uh, we, don't, we, we, want, we, we would like some content, please. So, you know, the, the best instructions I could get is to sit still and be quiet. That would be, that would be the ultimate instruction. Just be quiet. Sit still. <laughs> like a little kid. <laughs> sit still and be quiet. But it would be almost impossible for those of us in the room. So we give intermediate quiets. Quiet. We give you strategies which allow a disposition of quiet, but it's not full quiet. We tell you to follow your breath. Now, you've, now you're on to some traction. You know, you know when you're doing it and when you're not. Right? Get, you know, there's, a, there's a rub there and there's a difficulty because I can't always be with it. And a struggle to overcome, right? And and a, and a nobility, a purpose. If you're really good, you can follow it five times. <laughs> and a way to kind of calculate all that. So, this, but this journey, this journey. Let us just be clear. I I, I don't mind us veering off course. I mean, if you veer off course, you can do that because, you know, it's not only a journey of quiet, it's also a journey of maturity. And the readiness to want to enter quiet is dependent upon you being fed up with noise. And that, there's no preparation for that except until you get fed up with noise. So if you want to veer off into noise, have at it. Because you'll eventually wake up from all of that constant backlash of sound. And that's okay. So that, so some of us get very, um, I'm way off course here in my, I'm not even on topic. But I'm just going to go and then maybe I can circle back. Maybe. Or maybe I'll give it tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, what was I saying? Being fed up with noise. So some of us take on techniques uh, and they, they create a kind of... Um, they're sort of an echo chamber in some ways. Um, and so when we do each thing, you know, there's a certain way we're doing it in a certain right direction and orientation to it. And 
So there's this, it feeds a kind of commentation, doesn't it? Sort of a, a commentary back in the back about how we're doing in relationship to what we're, what we're uh, trying to do in our practice and how well we're doing it. And this commentary gives us a sense of progress, gives us a sense of movement, gives us a sense of disposition, gives us a sense of orientation, and perhaps, although it's harder to see how it does, it may give us a sense of destination. But what is the destination? The real destination is to be quiet. And we can use our techniques and our methods to stir things up. But for the most part, we have to be quiet. Which means that at some point the technique has to go. Fair enough. It's so interesting, you see, uh, um, the reason that it's so confusing is because when we're seeing through the mind, we're not, when we're looking through the mind, we're not looking at the mind. I'm going to change this, but I'll fold back into it. So what does that mean? You see, the practice is to look at the mind. But mostly, we look through the mind. Now, you look through the mind, there is a prism effect. P-R-I-S-M. Prism effect. It distorts. It's like a virtual reality. When we look through the mind, we look in, a, in the way that the mind has conjectured, this computered mind has conjectured and formed reality from its neurological patterns, historical and otherwise. And we see the reality the mind disposes in front of us. And we come into practice with that predisposition of looking through the mind for everything we need or want to be gained as an externalization of the mind, needs need to be overcome through activities or mental training. But we're not looking at the mind. When we take a different orientation to the mind, suddenly the mind opens up beyond its virtual reality. We see it very differently. And we see that we need, what the mind needs is very different than what we thought it needed when we were looking through it, imprisoned within it, imprisoned within it. But mostly we're neither, we're sort of, we're sort of halfway in one and halfway in the other. We'll catch our breath, maybe we'll catch an emotion, and then we're often running from the entrapped view of being in the mind, having to do something about these, this mental disposition, this emotion, this pain in the knee. And we'll be off from the virtual reality because those laws are very different than the laws of, that are governed by observation. Observing the mind, we see an emotion as an emotion. Looking through the mind, we see, I am disappointed. I am angry. 
and it's your fault that I'm angry and I have to do something about you so that I can resolve my anger. Looking at the mind, we see anger arising. Period. So where is our practice, you see? If we are searching, and this is seeking, searching in the wise direction or searching in an unwise direction. In the beginning of practice, all this will fold back in. I don't, these are little pieces to, hopefully, it will all come back into them. So if we're searching in a, most of us start off searching in an unwise direction. The unwise direction we're searching in is from the mind. The mind feels a growing sense of alienation, despair, loneliness, something, which drives us to a spiritual search. And we're trying to overcome the alienation we feel through the methods we employ and practice to get to God or some destination that we create so that we won't feel that disappointment anymore or despair or whatever drove you. And there are varied reasons for people to be on the path. There are a variety of, of things that are being sought in a beginning re, uh, class, I'll ask people what are their expectations and it's usually like I want a quiet mind, I want more peace, I want uh, to know myself better. Things that are uh, very uh, acute and important to each of those people who are speaking, but they're all visions from being seen through the mind. I need this in order for this feeling I have to be corrected. Now that sense of despair, there's wisdom in despair. Uh, and we are, we are, we really need one of the correcting influences uh, is that when there is despair, again, when we're looking through the mind, we're trying to get over the despair by countering it in some way, by having some doing some activity or doing something which improves us sufficiently so that we will no longer be in despair, even medication. But despair has a spiritual, um, it has a, a spiritual root. <clears throat> and that is that when we have bottomed out in a particular way, in a particular path or a particular journey, a particular disposition to life, when we have bottomed out, the feeling of bottoming out, of having nothing else to, be, to feed upon in this particular strategy of life that I'm leading, is despair. We feel uh, an AA, people will talk about that, where you just, at some point, the turnaround to actually have a very different disposition to one's life is the feeling of despair. And so too in spiritual work, despair holds a wisdom. If we see it in the right orientation, if we search for a cure for our despair, something to take the pain away, then we will search 
in an unwise direction. But if we orient ourselves to the despair properly, it will say something about the strategies that we've employed up until that point. What we've been doing to ourselves hasn't worked. And if we're very wise, we will realize that it isn't because I haven't tried hard enough. It's because it will never work, no matter how hard I try. And I haven't just found the right partner or the right this or the right that or the right job. It's the fact that I'm looking at life to feed me in a certain way that it's impossible for it to ever do. Now, that's a very sobering understanding, but at least I'm headed in the right direction. It doesn't make despair any easier. But we're using it in alignment with what it is telling us in truth about the life we have led and what we're looking for and from that life for fulfillment and contentment. And so when I can say, okay, so then that's it. This will not work. It's not going to work if I try for 20 or 30 more years. It just isn't going to do, do it. But to get to that point, we have to stop looking through the mind to cure our despair. You see? When you feel despair, the, the knee-jerk response from the virtual reality of looking through the mind is trying to do something to get me back into entertainment, excitement, and intensity or something to counter this feeling of darkness I have. I think much of depression in this culture is actually has a basis in wisdom. But I don't think that we are geared towards looking at it in the proper orientation. We're geared to looking at it through the mind, which means there's something wrong with me because I have this emotion. And from that disposition, we can never correct it because that's a disposition that gave us the despair in the first place. And we're trying to milk a dry cow. There's no, no milk there. So this sense of search is a very important component. And let us not pretend that search was only the first year or so of our spiritual journey and then we got into the found mode. Spear, spiritual surge goes from one end to the, of the continuum to the, uh, to the end. It is in the entire continuum of the spiritual. In fact, it's the entire continuum of our life to search our way out of now. That is what life, when lived from the virtual Reality is always attempting to do. Because if it settles into now, it gets quiet. And in order for us to feel like we are useful as people, we can't abide in quiet. We have to move out into noise, into uh, some sort of rub or resistance to life and then we feel like we have an obstacle to overcome and, and then we're being useful and productive and then on and on. So we keep noise we keep noise artificially induced within us so that we'll have a purpose and intention through this virtual reality of mind 
to overcome and to have a sense of meaning for ourselves. And behind it is this feeling of a deep uh, culturally intoned feeling of loneliness. And uh, despair, and we don't know what we don't know where to go with it. We don't know what to do with it. We don't have any. We don't have any cultural ways to really address it, because everybody that is facing us is also in their own virtual reality, and this particular disposition is showing us the end, is showing us the limitation of a reality that we're looking through. And so what do we do with that? That's like the end of the story, the end of the book. But everybody else is telling us that the story just is a very fine one. It's a very nice one. You just need to renew your dialogue with things. Just keep trying. Keep trying. Keep The sense of search. So then we search, you see. We continue to search. We feel this growing sense of, of longing in ourselves because the despair, and when we notice it, doesn't stay despair. It starts turning into longing. It starts pulling us. It's, there's something. It's like, have you ever heard whales, this, whales communicate? You know, isn't there something that, it's like a call of the wild. Something comes out of you, it's like, oh, something's pulled from your chest. It's like something is being accessed. Or, or hearing wolf, wolves call at night, coyotes. It's that call of the wild, that longing, that longing is part of, when we, look, when we feel the despair, part of that despair is a kind of longing of spirit. Because a part of us, a part of us, if we could just get the right orientation, would love to search our way through this longing and, and resolve this longing. But we get we get involved in spiritual practice in exactly the same way we got involved with our lives. We look through our minds and we try to resolve the longing of our spirit, which needs attention, not our searching, external searching. It's like the cry of a child. The child just needs our attention to stop crying. And this longing inside of us, when correctly viewed in a wise direction, when, it's get, when our attention is given to it, because the call of the wild is the call to be pulled within ourselves, not to look through the mind in disposition of what I need to do to fix this longing. What teacher I need to seek, what practice I need to perform, how many retreats I need to do. And so we've misread the cues. We've misread this spiritual longing 
in exactly the same way as we translate our own emotional disposition as I am in a state of longing and so therefore I need fixing. When we're in a state of longing, we feel lost, lacking, which means we have to go out and get something to find something or someone which will orient us correctly away from this longing so that we can resolve it. But the longing when seen, when we look at the mind rather than seeing through the mind, when we actually pay attention to the mind and the longing for itself rather than what the longing seems to indicate we need, it gets resolved in that way. And how does it get resolved? It gets resolved because we bring quiet in that observation. We bring quiet to the very sense of longing itself, the very sense of wanting to search, to find, to discover, that yearning in our heart for completion, for contentment, for the call of the wild. And so, when we have learned our proper orientation to the longing, a wise direction to the longing is to take the searching, the need to discover things outside, the need to perform new acts of contrition, new practices, whatever, and we hold the longing for itself. And the search arrests itself because now it has nowhere to go. Before, we were just trying to resolve the searching, lacking feeling by finding the right teacher, the right method. Now we look at the sense of longing itself. And we just... Open, watching, seeing the mind, not from the mind, but looking at the mind. So when we're looking at the mind, the longing is not taking us to a new destination. And the attention that we are now bringing to the mind was the missing part that allows the mind to resolve its own longing. Ultimately, that observation, that attention was just presence, quiet presence. Do you see? So the searching from dissatisfaction is one orientation to our spiritual journey. But 
stopping and arresting the dissatisfaction so it doesn't take us out to the next thing that we have to find in order to cure it and just being bearing witness to the dissatisfaction itself. stops the dissatisfaction from feeding upon what it thinks it needs in order to be complete. Because each of us carry within our emotion a story about what we feel we need in order for that emotion to feel complete in itself. And we keep buying into that virtual reality called the mind's story that says my dissatisfaction can only resolve itself when I find the right partner, have the right job, get the right meditation teacher and and the story of our dissatisfaction can never be completely fulfilled within the journey we are taking because every step along the way we are creating more noise, more irritation, more resistance to the very thing that the mind needs in order to assuage its dissatisfaction which is quietude. I want want us to get a sense of how this thing corridors itself, how it encloses us, how the mind keeps feeding upon a particular disposition that it thinks it needs in order to cure its problems, only to find that the cure leads to further disease. And at some point, somehow, we realize that. And the first thing we do in this practice is that we turn and think, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't listen to what the mind tells me I need. Maybe I should look at the mind itself. Maybe the mind has something to do with this problem rather than following what the mind tells me I need to do to end this problem. Maybe I need to turn back and be aware of the mind itself. Now this is tremendously important because what happens is something that is quite unexpected. When we actually turn our attention on our mind so that we're now looking at the mind rather than looking from the mind, I hope everybody's following these different... That turning our attention back on ourselves does something that is very radical. That turning our attention away from ourselves never could do. And that is, it starts self-love. When we turn our attention towards ourselves to see what the mind holds, that's a very different different disposition to the sense of self than trying to run towards the fix that we think is outside of ourselves. When we try to run to solve our problems outside of ourselves, we are in begrudge of ourselves. We are in, uh, we are in a, a, a very um, heated and dishonoring relationship to ourselves. But then when we turn back towards ourselves, suddenly the light of our attention, we feel that attention bringing forth 
self-affection. And it may be the first time in our whole life that we felt that. Instead of trying to solve the irritations of the problems externally, we are now looking at the disposition of the crying child inside, we shall say, the child that really doesn't need anything but attention. And that turning back and being aware, observing the acknowledgement of our existence satisfies us on lots of different levels. One of the psychological levels it satisfies us on is the need to be seen, the need to be held, the need to be connected to. And we can begin to feel the heart awakening to itself, this sense of appreciation for things that I have hated about myself, the shadowy qualities of myself, when I turn my attention back on myself, I see that they aren't such bad qualities at all. It's only within the story, the virtual story of myself, where it's all connected with my past and future that I've been running away from this thing called myself. When I turn my attention back on myself, all I see is an expression of an emotion, a thought, physical sensation. And so there's no reason that we can't love that. There's a lot of reasons that we can't love our story because most of us have been hideous in our story. (laughs) But there's no reason that we can't love what we see when we look at the mind rather than through the mind. Because there's not much there. And there certainly isn't anything that can be despised. There's just this. Just this feeling. Just this emotion. And so, metta, which is what we will be starting this evening in the last sit is an opportunity to break out of the fixed ways that we have viewed ourselves through that virtual reality of looking through the mind and we just begin to look at the mind. When we look at the mind the reason it's not so difficult is because it's very impersonal. There's no one around in there running around creating havoc. There's just this, just this, just this. But when it's all laced together into a story, which is what the fabric of our brains do, related to the past memory and the recognition and the present reality and the future expectations, when the just to this is related into a story and pieced together like single letters forming words into sentences and then into paragraphs and then into chapters, suddenly the drama of it all, the noise of it all, becomes unacceptable. 
to even stay in this thing. So I have to get out of it. I have to journey out of it for any sense of safety because in here it's just my God. But as soon as we're willing and daring enough, courageous enough to turn our attention back and look at that state of affairs which we've been running from and trying to search our way out of, suddenly it's not much. There isn't a great deal of problem there. What I thought I needed to fix, I really just needed to re-perceive, perceive differently, just to perceive what it is. It gets very simple. And when something gets simple, you know you're on the right spiritual track. When it gets complex, you know you're off track. Because it's the mind that is the complexity, creates the complexity. And so we know that we're looking through the mind when things are getting complex. And when things are simple, we know we're looking at the mind. And so we're in the right orientation to this question. And so it also gets very quiet. Because I'm not pitted against myself. I'm not in dispute with myself. I'm just in recognition to myself, which is a very different way. And here, looking through the mind, I was in dispute of myself, trying to get out of myself. When I look at it, all I do is recognize what's there. I haven't formed a logic and a continuum around what's there. I just see what's there in its most simplistic form. And now the whole thing gets very delightful, really. Very um, stable. What, the neurotic tendencies was all the jamming up of the noise within the it's all the noise just getting jammed somehow. You know, like six record players going off at the six disc recorders going off at the same time. You know, it's like radios in the room at every corner. But just looking, just seeing. Just seeing. So that's what we're doing. We have taken our externalized projects, our, the ways that we have used our minds, looking through the mind, and all of the different things it tells us about the world and our state of affairs within it. And we have simply turned it back on itself. And when we turn it back on itself, suddenly it has no argument. Where can it argue? It can only argue going forward. When it's not, when it's only now. When I'm looking only from now to now. Where is it going to go? It has no future. It has no past to, to bring forth. It has no story to face together. It's stuck. It stops because it's only now. Because the observation of what's going on doesn't lead to a continuation. 
doesn't lead to a past, doesn't lead to a future. It's only arising and passing. It's actually very beautiful because we see that our whole life has been an attempt to get out of now, has been a searching from now, has been an attempt to get out of my whatever it is that's happening now. Because right now, I don't feel, I don't feel, looking through the virtual reality, I don't feel that I'm settled. I don't feel I'm content enough. I don't feel I'm happy enough. I don't feel I'm resolved enough. I don't feel like I'm grown enough, matured enough, enlightened enough. Right? Is there anybody want to... You look through your virtual reality and tell me what you see. You're never going to win that one. Because the way it's programmed is to keep you moving forward, to keep you find, to keep us finding the answers moving forward. Forward movement, future, future bound. That virtual reality is that's, those are the set guidelines, those are the laws by which it operates. There's no way to win that one. But as soon as we turn it back on itself, then we've already won. The game is over. Because now is. We aren't creating a virtual virtual reality from now, which never existed, because all things are of now. There can't be a second reality except the one that the mind creates that's virtually on top of the one that is. And when we stop living that life of the virtual reality, because it doesn't satisfy and from despair we turn back in and look at now for its own sake and we find nothing wrong we find nothing wrong with now that was we were so certain there was something wrong with us my mother told me there was something wrong <laughs> I didn't pass do well in school I I've been in jail from that reality there's a lot to fix from this reality there's nothing to fix because we haven't gone anywhere and there is no journey there's no journey even conceiving our spiritual life in terms of a journey works against us because when we think of it as going towards something we're going away from now and then we keep looking up ahead to see how close we are to the destination we've perceived from where? From where we are now. And where we are now, the emotions that we're feeling aren't settled. So we say we have more to do. But when we look at those emotions for themselves, they're completely okay. On and oh, for themselves, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They don't have to be amended. And so the dead stop. There's a dead stop there. And a dead quiet. And a dead resolution. And when there's a dead stop, that is the definition of contentment. That is the definition of resolution. So how are we going to work it, you see? Our search will continue. How are we going to operate this thing in a wise way, 
or in an unwise direction. How much of our time on retreat is spent looking through this projected reality? When all around us is the call of the wild. It's in the air, in the light breeze of the fan. Total resolution in the sound of the cricket. And that's the end of suffering. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.